This week, it's a new podcast musical from the folks behind Limetown. It's got Jonathan Groff. It's got Jesse Shelton. It's got a duck named Henry. Ah, it's so good. I talk with the writers and composers of the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda described as, and I quote, Good! That's all caps, six O's. It's 36 questions. Let's do this thing. And the closet of my childhood bedroom, this is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I'm kind of sick, and I'm coming to you from suburbia because Jillian and I are in town for a couple of weddings. Back to your regular audio environment and your normal less sick but admittedly less resonant voice next week. Ellen Winter and Chris Littler are musicians living in New York. And about two years ago, the producers of the podcast Limetown asked them to create a musical podcast based on Arthur Aaron's psychological study called The Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness, or as it was popularized in a 2015 New York Times article, The 36 Questions That Lead to Love. Eighteen months later, a show emerged, and it's goddamn awesome. However, we can't play more than 60 seconds of the program, so what I'm going to do is just urge you repeatedly to go subscribe to the show now because it is that good. It's a musical in three acts. It'll take you about two and a half hours. This interview you're about to hear will make sense without the show, but I do warn you, it gets a trifle spoilery. So go ahead, subscribe now. 36 questions on Apple Podcasts, or look for two up productions. I got the time. If you got the time, we'll be here for you when you get back. Okay, you're back. Did you like it? Yeah, probably, if you like musicals and good stuff and emotions. So I sat down with Ellen and Chris, who created 36 Questions, to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. The origins of the piece, their creative partnership, how to voice act like you're holding a duck. You know, all the important things. Take a listen. Ellen and Chris, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Chris, let's start with you. Uh, you were roommates with Zach Akers and Skip Bronke in college at NYU, and you ended up writing episode four of Limetown, and then later they turned to you with this pitch. I-, I would like to hear from you the story, from both of you, the story of how you, Chris, initially involved Ellen, your bandmate, and then eventually the whole chamber band crew in the development of this musical. Sure. So Skip and Zach sat me down at Blue Bottle Coffee in Williamsburg and said, we've got this crazy idea. I'm there. It's like I'm there. Were you working at that blue bottle? I had worked at that blue bottle, <laughs> and I would frequently go back there um, because I can get free coffee by saying, I worked at this blue bottle. <laughs> nice. Uh, but Skip and Zach paid for it anyway. Uh, so that's how I knew they meant business. Um, so <laughs> they asked me, they said, we got this crazy idea. We know that you know musicals, like you know how to write songs, obviously, but do you think that you could write musical theater and i said i can absolutely write musical theater if i can bring on ellen winter who lives and breathes music and who i had worked with for two years at that point three years at that point um and so i said i gotta talk to ellen um they said cool let us know what you think and then i got on the train and then i called you Mm -hmm. and i said i got a crazy thing do you want to make a podcast musical do you want to make a musical with Skip and Zach? And I, I mean, you were yeah. pretty much on board I was that like, point, right? That sounds impossible. I'm so into it. I don't even know how I'd begin to do that, but I want to figure it out. I remember receiving the phone call in my kitchen in bed I was 
thankfully alone in my apartment because I think I probably like made a really loud sound that might have scared some people. <laughs> also probably like collapsed to the floor out of excitement and yes. enthusiasm, which some people are shocked to see sometimes, but it's, I was fine. Everything was fine. You move um, slowly enough to the ground. That you I, I do move yourself. slowly enough that people are not like, oh, she just passed out. Right. It's usually like a, it's like a descent. Into a squat. Into like a squat and then eventually into like a horizontal position of like, I just need a second to take this information <laughs> in. Because it's um, a dream. I mean, I, I mean, you and yeah. I have both written musicals independently, mm -hmm. but nothing at this scale. Yeah. Nothing that was going to be put out into the world and hopefully listened to by thousands hundreds of thousands of people we had no idea at that point but yeah. we just knew that they trusted our vision and that we were going to make a full-length musical together it was exciting for us too to like uh chamber band it's it's a lot it's all like concept albums worlds um all the all the albums and the songs are written in established universes and so it felt like a natural progression for us to add dialogue into that wheelhouse yeah. And as Chris said, you know, like both of us had written musicals on our own and um, it was really exciting to uh, explore the prospect of us writing one together. And so Anthony was like the first person that we brought on. Oh, yeah. He's the only person that doesn't have like a formal role on the show. Mm -hmm. He basically went with us out to this place called The Farm in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. uh, that's run by our friend Eric Tate. And it's basically like a former sheep farm mm -hmm. that's been turned into a recording studio. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. So you like live out there and you sleep out there and you just record music during the day. Mm -hmm. But we were using it basically just to sit at a piano. Yeah, it's like a beautiful just... baby grand. Mm -hmm. And we just like went up there for like four days and Anthony like made sure we didn't die. He's made us sandwiches. He like made us sandwiches and like made sure we were drinking. He would water. come in like every like two hours and be like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. He's like, oh, we're just writing music. He's like, okay. Well, yeah, we go like, for a walk. That, that is the sweetest. Yeah, he was great. So valuable. He's also like, we, we love musicals and he is really not a he doesn't musical. like them. he does not no, like right. them and we actually had a night where we just like listened to a bunch of musicals with him and we were kind of gauging like what he was into as a non-musical theater enthusiast like if we really wanted this to stretch beyond musical theater land how would we do that sure. um so he was really instrumental in that and then we brought on uh asar and sam pretty much at the same time uh, Astar as our musical director, right? Yeah, associate and then, music director. And and then Sam was our percussion dramaturg. Yeah. yeah, we called him our percussion dramaturg. Yeah. <laughs> is Sam the person behind integrating the rhythmic sound effects in songs like One Thing or the typing and attachment? Typing and attachment is it's him. A, it's yeah. kind of a blend. Yeah, it's the blend. typing and attachment is him. Mm -hmm. uh, but Joel Rabe, who was our sound designer, also took the reins on a few of those things. Mm -hmm. And like, really, to be fair, we have to say that um, Steve and Kate, Steve Bone and Kate Belinsky, mm -hmm. also are, were involved in that process. Mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of like an all hands on deck where all these people were making sure that those things were kind of tied together. Did you script for that? Was that a post-production decision to put in that kind of texture or what? It was an idea we had from the get-go, but just in the based on like the process of post-production and the process in which we kind of put everything together, it wasn't quite attainable until like the final step, but we knew we wanted it there. We just like weren't sure how it was going to be executed until we like, we just basically went to Joel and Sam and we were like, okay, we want to integrate this into the music. And we think, you know, we indicated in the script and the song where that might happen. 
Yeah, so like in one thing, it was for sure always going to be a skipping vinyl track. Right. right. We right. knew that from the get-go. Yeah, and we relayed that to Kate and Steve. Yeah, and in our word, we knew we wanted to play with turn signals, mm -hmm. which ended up being windshield wipers, Windshield I think. wipers and a turn signal. And a turn yeah. signal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we weren't as precious about it as it went on, but at the beginning mm -hmm. we were like, oh yeah, we want to do this as much as possible. Yeah. Sure. But I yeah. think Hear Me Out actually does still have a door knock sound in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why that kick drum has that, it feels yeah. kind of weirdly heavy. Yeah, and I mean, we call Sam our percussion dramaturg because he has this amazing ability. I think when we when we were first first working on the show, like we went through a lot of different versions and drafts, and Sam was uh, like we started bringing him in when we were coming up with the songs, and he was kind of helping us get a vibe and feel for them as we were just doing read throughs of scenes. Um, and then like as the piece continued to evolve, he was really helpful in the studio and like in the rehearsal process or like pre rehearsal process when we were actually looking at the 13 songs that ended up in the show of just figuring out, arranging these drum parts and internalizing the emotional moment and executing them musically. He has this innate ability to translate the emotion and the mouth sounds that we throw at him, <laughs> mm. which is oftentimes like, can we get like a, like a bado, ba, ba, bidi, ba. And he's like, oh, you mean this? And then we're like, that's a lot better than what we just said. So yeah. yes, thank you. That, that, yes, yes. <laughs> I know this isn't what you meant by mouth sounds, but I was thinking about the the way that breath and mouth sounds are deployed um, later, like in the in the third act, um, because I, it seems to me, and I guess maybe I should do like a, another couple of careful listens, but it, it seems to me that a lot of the breaths were edited out in the first act, but then when we get really really intimate with Jace, you're hearing a lot of like breath noise and a lot of just close like voice texture up against the recorder is that is that something you were you were building it on purpose to make it just seem even more intimate and closer to the listener or what was what was going on there well i feel like the first act it's the shiniest act of them all mm -hmm. it's the most fun it's really like introducing the story it feels like a very polished tight i mean all of them feel polished and tight which we're really proud of but i think the first act is got, yeah, it's got like kind of a sheen to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that by the time we get to act three, we're in another level of reality, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term. Yeah, but like, it's the realness. It's the realness. Yeah. And like in the first act, there's still a little bit of suspension of disbelief, I think. And there's still like a lot of hope. There's still a lot of possibility. And uh, that's a very like long-winded answer to your question. No, that was good. But the answer is that we weren't thinking about we it. Weren't think we weren't <laughs> thinking about it when it happened. No, it happened. It's, it's, it sure, was yeah. one of those things that kind of ended up happening. So I'm kind of I'm exploring the rationalization of the end result. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure every decision that we, like, clearly we're geniuses and we <laughs> had, like, a genius reason to do it. Yeah, 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 the genius read. Yeah, but maybe, you know, we, we didn't have to, like, think about it. Like, we're so smart. We weren't, we didn't we weren't have to, thinking like, about it, choice. but I'm, I'm analyzing it now. I'm using my dramaturg brain to analyze the mouth sounds. I wonder what the, like, number of, like, size is in each episode. Because I I, they increase exponentially. Oh, definitely. Episode. There's probably, like, one sigh for every ten words in Act 3. What? How do I turn this thing off? Uh, Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about that 
because there have been a few podcast musicals so far. I've been intimately involved with one of them, but this is the first one to take advantage of the tactile nature of audio, you know, take advantage of mm. audio point of view mm. to borrow from Neil Verma. We hear Judith's phone get handled, be poked at, mm-hmm. and characters come forward and recede from that point of view. Mm-hmm. How did you think about the blocking for 36 questions? Uh, well, at one point we had, a, we had some maps that we made. Yeah. <laughs> We were kind of trying to approach it from that perspective. And I think we kind of had to relinquish a lot of control there over to Joel. We didn't want to be prescriptive. It's in the scripts. You know, it's like Jace walks over to the kitchen and starts looking through cabinets. Judith picks the ring up and puts it down. Like all the important things that we felt like needed to happen that were character decisions that would help in the kind of acting, those are all in the script. But then when we would get mixes back from Joel... He had infused it with so many kind of like micro movements and these tiny moments that you never would have in a million years thought to do it. But he does it because he knows how important they are in establishing a sense of reality and and location for these people. We had a lot of conversations with Kate specifically about what happens when someone is far away from the phone. Yeah. Um, What happens to their voice when that happens? And and can you teach the listener to understand that when that's happening? Yeah. Because that space becomes more important as the show goes on. And like what it's also like when they're very close to the phone as well. What does that feel like? like? What does that mean? And what is that in conjunction with the atmosphere sound like? Right. It's such a delicate act to kind of try to balance all those things. Yeah. Yeah, I think in this stage of new American radio drama, there's been so much thought put into physicalizing um, the audio, like Mm. making there be a reason for these recordings to exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the British model, people don't tend to acknowledge the audio. It's just kind of there. Right, right, right. Like, like acknowledging the camera, you know? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just like suspension of disbelief. Like when you go see a play, is it voyeuristic? Or like, you know, yeah, are the characters aware that they're on a stage? Do you want to make another musical in this point of view style? Or are you thinking about other, I don't know what you're at liberty to discuss in terms of podcast or stage musicals or other projects going forward? I think that we both think that one of the more successful things about our show is the kind of sense of found footageness of it and the uh, kind of realism that that can depict and naturalism that that can depict. Yeah, there's something really exciting to us about a naturalistic musical. And so we're definitely excited for the prospect of doing more audio musicals, like more podcast musicals. You were talking about like, that's a, it's an American thing. I've never thought of that as yeah. an American thing, but that's so fascinating. Yeah. Audio drama in like Britain and uh, Germany and Ireland has just kind of been this unbroken line it like they never stop making it. And so if you look over the the corpus of successful American fiction podcasts over, you know, the past like 10, 15 years as the podcast as podcasting as a medium has like elevated this form, you tend to find a lot of either direct address as with Night Vale or found footage as with Limetown. I don't know. There, it's just something that I'm I'm seeing. I don't entirely know what to make of it yet. I think it's because as Americans were relearning how to listen to this medium. Right. You have to teach the listener at the beginning of anything how you're going to listen to it. You had written, uh, you had said in this interview with uh, Stuart Spencer of Onstage Blog, the show initially had a third person narrator. Is that is that an accurate way to put it? Yeah, it was me. Oh, it was you. What, what, who was that <laughs> character and how did you decide to get rid of them? 
we kind of the way we were justifying it is like in this older version of it we were kind of toying with this idea that it was kind of this very prairie home companion-esque in the land of like the fantastics almost it's a scrappy team telling a story and i was essentially like my character was the music director of this story and that's why it had to be a musical oh so it it went it was originally like an unintegrated musical yeah Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoa! So it was like we were like it had to be a musical, and it was a podcast. Yeah, it would have been like more like This American Life, or more of a Prairie Home Companion feel to it. That was like a little more. Everything was like all the music was live off the floor um, mm-hmm. in this in this prior version. But what we found was when we like reflected upon that is that we still couldn't justify why that had to be a podcast. Because we were still at the end of the day, we were like, okay, but like, why does the narrator, why does this music director care? Because this is their job. Like, why is the music director care about like as a character and not as like me playing the character, but like, why are they here? And why are they involved in this two person narrative? Mm-hmm. We also had like a, a chorus too. And we started to think about what was the simplest answer and what was the blind spot that we were not aware of. And I think for us, a big revelation was like, well, you know, Chris and I are in a band. When we make albums, we layer the shit out of our voices when we do albums. And uh, we were like, (laughs) why can't we make a chorus out of two people? Um, And why can't our narrator be one of our protagonists? Um, It makes the most sense. And once we handed over that agency to Judith, she's the one who's the driving force behind the show. Uh, The whole thing really like opened up. We had a revelation where like the narrator, the chorus, neither of them were really conducive to why this needed to be a podcast. Like, what can we do in this form that we cannot do in any other form? Um, yeah. It's interesting to like think about that now in the context of like, I guess, what, were, what did you call it, David? Modern American? Yeah, just, uh, uh, I guess, American audio fiction, American podcast fiction. American podcast fiction, audio fiction that like in like desperately looking for the kind of solution to our narrative problems we were like this is a podcast yeah musical podcast first musical second yeah and what is of a podcast like what do you expect a podcast to be so we were looking at lion town yeah or black tapes or bright sessions right all of them found footage ideas right mm-hmm. so like we wanted people who turned it on to be like this is a podcast okay right. i'm in my comfort zone i understand okay yes. is there gonna be music where's the music oh there it is okay yep. where are we gonna <laughs> sing oh now we were definitely like looking at the format and where where we stood in it to make sure that we were kind of holding our listeners' hands up to that first song. So it's interesting to me that this began as an unintegrated musical, because now, as an integrated musical, the characters aren't consciously aware that they're singing, to the point where Judith only admits to having sung the I'm Gonna Die Out Here song, right? Right, yeah. I've never seen a metafictional call-out that subtle. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Thank you. Like, where it's like, oh, here are the rules, yeah. right. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was actually an outtake at one point in uh, in one thing where, uh, you know, there's a moment where Judith is like, you know, one thing, yeah, really just, just one, one and he's yeah. like, and there's a version where Jonathan was just like, stop singing! And like... <laughs> Which we, is like, we had to figure that out. Like, does out. He, Who knows who's singing? Sure. Is there, and we kind of just settled on like, no one in a musical knows that they're singing. No one knows. No one knows. 
here's a question though. Yeah. If someone says stop singing as a lyric in a song yeah. when they're not aware that they're singing, does it still are they still aware? Uh-oh, oh, my okay. brain. My brain. Going down the rabbit hole here. Oh no. Ah. I think I think you just don't want the audience right to be thinking down. about that. Like you don't yeah. want to like put right. that in their brains because it's so much work to get them to not think about the singing and just take it for granted. Yes. So you never want to like, you know, toss a rock in the pond. Yeah, yeah. I think that shakes the boat a little bit. I was curious about, you were talking earlier about the the naturalism, um, and I, it really sounds very unlike other musicals that I've heard, you know, both the lyrics and the delivery. Number one, how did you direct for those kinds of, like, dynamics? Mm-hmm. And number two, how do you coach someone away from that broader Broadway style? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was certainly like a learning curve for the second one. Mm-hmm. We knew going into it that intimacy was an asset. Yes. It wasn't something that was working against us. Mm-hmm. You know, you listen to modern pop vocals and it sounds like the person is whispering in like a small box inside of a chapel. You know, it's like <laughs> it's the weirdly most intimate thing. They're yeah. whispering in their ear because that's what mics can do now. Right. Like we were looking a lot at, uh, or rather not looking, but listening to a lot of like, you know, Alt-J, Sylvanesso, um, and Esperanza Spalding, Fiona Apple, like, you know, all of these performers and songwriters who get loud. I mean, Sylvan Esso particularly, I feel like, uh, has a very airy and intimate quality in, in their performances. And we knew that we wanted to elevate that intimacy. And it was a lot of, um, you know, in the studio, when we'd be looking at songs after having, you know, run them a few times in rehearsal, it was like, okay, your instinct here is to get loud, which I think might actually be a sign that we need to get closer and we need to get quieter. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is the in-your-headphones version of this Broadway belt? And then, you know, there were obviously moments, too, where we were like, okay, actually, step back from the mic and let it rip to a certain degree. You know, maybe not up to 11, but let's turn it up to, like, a 6 or a 7 here. And just, yeah, being conscious of that, yeah. yeah. Or when Groff kind of runs off mic to scream. Right, right. Yeah, right. exactly. Which he, which he is a master at. A master at. We have a lot He's of really so great so good at that. Yeah, he was really good. So <laughs> many screams. Yeah, yeah. Which we will yep. be selling as a pack of ringtones. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was listening. I was like, oh, that does sound supported. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, we're lucky to have his instrument. Yeah, Yeah. Mr. Jonathan Graff has spent a lot of time in a booth Mm -hmm. at all certain levels, all types of levels, and he is uh, he taught us a lot of things too. Yeah, he taught us a lot of things. Yeah. And we learned yeah, we learned a lot from him and Jesse. They were like such a great team. What did they teach you? Well, Jonathan specifically taught me a lot about snowshoeing yeah that was yeah the, that, that was cool that was the term for like i don't know if, i don't know if we made this term up have you heard that term david i wasn't sure if you actually meant like walking like around in snowshoes so no, what, what do you what is this a euphemism <laughs> okay for? i guess i guess like the act of like when your character's supposed to be walking like how goofily you have to move your body yeah, to, you have to like exaggerate exact yeah so that it, oh to get so the they, sound of it yeah, because you're, you're not going to pick up the sound of, like, your clothes rustling, and you certainly don't want to hear, like, your actual feet on the floor because you're wearing socks. Mm-hmm. But, like, whatever happens to your body, I'm trying to do it now. I have to really exaggerate it. When you're walking. Wait, so, like, lean over and pick up a duck, right? Wasn't that right, the example? Right, 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 right. Like, so pick up a duck, but it's not going to be the size of a normal duck. It's got to be the size of a right, really like, okay, big I'm, duck. I'm like, all right, I just got to get this duck real quick. When I'm holding the duck and I'm trying to... 
moving up and down right now. I'm not Jonathan Groff, so I might not be. But you you got the same jangle as him. You got, got the same, same like loose like, skeleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoo, 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 shoo. I'm petting a very large duck that's more of a swan size. Which right. Is the other thing that we learned, which is that he was only Henry. He told us like the last day, and he was like, Yeah, I was just kind of, I guess I was really more imagining a swan than like a large white duck. Right. So the, the pull quote here is that Jonathan Groff doesn't know what ducks are. No, no, no. No, that actually sat us down, and he was like, Guys, I really love this show, but you keep talking about these dukes and i don't know what, I they don't know what a duke is <laughs> i don't know what a duke is and it's like dude if you don't know now like you're never gonna know so just yeah. shut just up and like jazz. just act that's what you do for a living right get back in the booth and do it yeah let the mystery be and yeah. for and for jesse i don't know i think the thing that one of the things that i really learned from her is like shh. so we had this there's like some serious scenes that's exactly what i was gonna talk yeah, about. yeah there's like yeah. you want you, yeah you know, oh yeah well i just kind of learned what Having worked in theater and musicals, like you're aware that acting is a skill, like right. it is a real craft, and it, and that I think both of us have tried our hand at on various occasions and been right. like, nope, maybe not, not my speed. But what was truly the most impressive feat was there's a scene, you know, at the end of Act Two, where Jace is essentially like driving away again, and. Jesse, like the first time she did this scene, you know, and, and it's a really intense scene. It's their big fight. And we did it once and all of us in the booth, there's like six of us in the booth and we're all crying and like weeping with her. And then like we end the take and then she like wipes her face, looks up and goes, great. So should we do that again? <laughs> it's just like oh totally gosh. like, and we were like, ah. Uh, give us just a second. <laughs> like, we just had to like compose ourselves and we end up doing it six times or something crazy. And yeah, we were like, just... after the third time, we were like, can we please stop? Like, and she's like, no, let's like, keep yeah, going. We got to keep going. I'm in it now. I just want to get a few more takes just so we have it. And it was like every single one we got was better than the last one. Right. To access that emotional well and be able to tell a story with such truth and like be in that present and also to tell that story in literally a carpeted room in Chinatown. She was not in a motel in the Outer Banks. There's that whole element of sound design that is not there, you know? And right. she was just so... Uh, we knew she was amazing, right. but it, I was just completely blown That's away. That's a different type of like bringing it, because, yeah, it's like you said, like, I feel like I have heard audio drama where I'm like, I know what the living room that this person is recording in looks like, mm -hmm. even though they're supposed to be on planet, you know... Garblocks. Garblocks. Like I can, I can sense that the actor is reading from something and like mm -hmm. that they're not in it. It's not like the same level of quality that you would get in a movie yeah. or, you know, even on stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that was really important to us is like, how do we get those types of performances out of these right. people? Yeah. And it's really comes down to having actors that know what the stakes are yeah. and are able to transport themselves out of that studio. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were lucky enough to get them. That's fantastic. This is just a stray question. Uh, do you have a favorite lyric, either of you, from the show? Uh, the first line that comes to my mind is, we didn't see Camille the day she died. I yeah, love that lyric yeah, so yeah. much. Yeah. Uh, and it really has nothing to do, I mean, like, obviously Jesse killed it, but, like, I just saw my dad, like, last week, and he's obviously a big fan of the show. Um, and he was like, I, I feel like I don't know what happened in that song. Like, what happened in that song? Like, what, what did she do? And I'm like, Dad... That's the point. I don't know what happened to Camille. 
I think it's a nice moment that props a door open. When you think you're getting all these answers, it just raises more and more questions. I was trying to count how many people uh, Judith had possibly murdered during that song. <laughs> <laughs> you do end it. You, yeah, there's definitely like by the end of it, you're like, uh, she just, she's a murderer? Is she murder? She's secret murderer? Did she murder she's Camille and Stasher on the yacht? There's something with the yacht. Yeah, yeah. she's chum. She's chum for the shark. Yeah. Let's just say that. What about yeah. you, Alan? You got a line? I don't know. It's not a good one. Yours is like packed okay. with like meaning. I'm Mine sure is apparently being... cement can get old. Oh, that's a great line. Which I is love like, that one. Which was like, I just remember working with Jonathan on that. And it was like, we were just running that over and over again. Apparently cement can get old. Apparently cement can get old. And we ended up like, he just did something different with it every time. And he would come into mm -hmm. rehearsal and just look at me and go, apparently cement can get old. And it was like. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. Like he was just like, yeah, we just like dropped that line. I think that that line really sells something essential about the show in Act One because it's this weird, irritated question that he doesn't right. he doesn't yeah. actually expect <laughs> Judith to answer. Yeah, it's like all of these things that I think are going to be constant are not. Well, it also like bespeaks his his ignorance of like home improvement, which <laughs> further underlines Judith's argument like you're just doing this to have control over something. You've right. never right. done home improvement in your life. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually found that to be a, a really particular character moment that really sold me on the show. Oh man, I'm so glad. Apparently yeah. some men can get old. Yeah. <laughs> Thunk it. <laughs> the way he delivers it, I think the take that we end up using was like, yeah, it was like, apparently cement can get old. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Old? Which is great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's my J-Man impression. That's great. My favorite lyric is in a better version where Judith says, that was an unfortunate anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Is that from yeah. life? Is that oh, really hitting good, hitting right? a scroll. Hitting a scroll, card. yeah. No, you never did. I didn't. The scroll. Thank God. No. Thank God that was. Just I did make flip off a mountain once, but not a scroll. That's another story. <laughs> right. That would have <laughs> just been a whole different song. Yeah. That's, that's a different like, song. Save that for a different musical. Yeah, different musical. Both characters have these obsessive elements to them. Judith is convinced that the 36 questions will save the marriage. And Jace, after the marriage falls apart, keeps returning to the recording like it's a talisman or a secret drug. Have either of you ever done either of those things in previous relationships? I had this experience as a junior in high school where I was obsessed with this girl who was not obsessed back with me. And I got into this situation where we were texting back and forth. It was a Nokia phone, a very specific ding when she texted me. And every time I heard that ding, I felt sick to my stomach. Even when it wasn't her texting yeah. me, where this like this thing became so charged and so loaded and it was about her and it was about my, like it all became a part of the phone to the point where like after the relationship was over and she for sure was not interested in me, I had to get rid of the phone. Well, I upgraded, you know, I got yeah. a new one too. So it was a win-win. <laughs> and Nokia probably still works though. It does still work. Yeah. yeah hopefully someone has it somewhere. <laughs> um, but I think that's like my most like, like where an object is just become so loaded with like a relationship or is the relationship in an object. We're both obsessive people though. Yeah. I feel like there are certain songs that are like really hard for me to play. 
Because I think I put a lot of... Like your songs? Yeah, like songs that I wrote during a difficult time in a relationship mm -hmm. to like get through it. When like the relationship was going bad, I would play the song I wrote when I was happy in it to try and remind myself. And then it would be like once it had crashed and burned, I was like, mm, you know, I really can't play this like happy song about this relationship anymore. So you wouldn't try to return to that song? Um, I think I would try and then I would, it just didn't have the same life. I think I read this somewhere. You had written that Jace is most like you, Ellen, and Judith is most like you, Chris. Is that? Yeah, that, that sounds yeah. true. Yeah. Okay. Not, not to the same pathological extent in either case. I don't think so. No, I mean, I think there's bits of us in both of them, but sure. I think when it boils down to like how one would react in a given situation emotionally. Yeah. Like Judith yeah. has this kind of plan in place and she mm -hmm. thinks she's so smart and she's going to figure it out on the fly and she's going to get there and she's a smooth talker who can say what she needs to say. Right. And then at the last minute, a fundamental thing that she should have known in the first place is thrown in her face and she realizes that this was all built on stilts. I yeah. definitely can relate to that. I definitely understand yeah. that struggle. And Jace like cares to a fault. I think where it's like he cares with tunnel vision and is not necessarily aware of where all of that energy is coming from and like those that are being left behind in that caring. And so it's like his devotion and his caring, his love for his moms, I think is like a big part of uh, his driving force, I think during his arc and his love for Judith. And that's like pulling him apart and his love for himself. You know, right. it's like he wants to care about everybody, but he knows that he cannot fully do any of those people justice without removing one of them from the equation. Mm. We should definitely say that our story consultant, Kelly Teeger, is also definitely a Jace. Yes. She was there from day one. Day one. So we've got two Jaces and a Judith. I feel like I've got like a 20% Judith. Oh, nice. So you're yeah. kind of the middle ground. Wow, you're so balanced. I don't know about You're that. so balanced. Yeah, I'm like 20% balanced. <laughs> I don't know if I call that balanced. I'm still like that kid on the end of the seesaw when there's like no one on the other side. Oh, or maybe there's like a, a squirrel on the other side. Oh, well, that sounds yeah. like a good time. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's a good time. So on the Dungeons and Dragons alignment scale, uh -huh. where would you put Judith and Jace? I'm giving you this one, Chris. <laughs> Do you know alignment scales? No. We have to. We have to kind of talk it out a little bit, yeah. right? Great. So there's lawful to chaotic. Oh right, yes. Okay, right? lawful to chaotic. Lawful just means you follow mm -hmm. a rule set. Mm -hmm. Chaotic mm -hmm. means that there are no rules. Right, right. And yes. if you're neutral, you're in between. And then there's, and there's good and evil. evil. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. All right. So you have to find somewhere on the grid. Right. So, right. Right. Mm. Uh, okay. Well, okay. So, <laughs> so Judith will say anything she needs to say to get ahead, right? Lawful. You're whispering to me, but did you say she's lawful evil? You're saying it even quieter now. <laughs> lawful evil? Yes. Whoa, you think Judith okay. is lawful evil? Interesting. I don't, I don't think she will, but she doesn't like have... Evil. She's not evil, though. Yeah, she's not trying to do harm. Mm -hmm. She's just in it for herself. How right? can it be Which harm is, if it let her love Jace? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right, that's right, kind of her right. rationale at the end, right? Mm -hmm. So... That's kind of lawful neutral, right? It's like, I've got my own code. Yeah. I live by my is, own yeah. code. And it's self-serving. Okay, yeah, I get that. Okay, got it, got it. I yeah. think. But Lock she's not good. 
I don't think she's lawful. She's good. not good because she would have stopped that shit yeah. way beforehand. But she's lawful in the sense that like she understands the parameters in which to exist in a socially stable. Exactly. Life. Lawful and chaotic are just a means yes. of like determining how someone sticks to their kind of world. Right, view, right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So then Jace I think Jace is lawful good, but he's but that doesn't like the alignment skill has nothing to do with like his own bullshit and the kind of problems that an actual lawful good person would have, mm-hmm. right? When, like, there's a lawful good person when challenged of, like, hey, there's actually this thing that you think is good, it actually has some dynamics to it and different sides to it that you need to start thinking about. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? No, like, this is this and that's that. Mm-hmm. Black is black and white is white. Like, mm-hmm. stop trying to... I believe that's what we call lawful stupid. Lawful stupid? Mm-hmm. It's the paladin problem. It is the paladin problem. They're so up their own asses. They so think that their way is the only way. And it's that goblin is crossing the street against traffic. Exactly. Let like, do you even understand, noble sir, how hard that goblin's life is on a day to day, and how much privilege you have as a knighted person? And that goblin is just trying to like go feed yeah, his yeah, kids. Yeah. I don't see fantasy race. Oh, uh, yeah. okay, okay. Wow. I see. Wow. Oh, you're one of those. So yeah, lawful. I think I think lawful, neutral, and lawful good. Is that does that feel good to you, or yeah. you kind of made a face with lawful good? You don't think Jace is good? No, I do. I'm just like still thinking about Judith because like she's always a mystery to me. I mean, I think she's she's a little she's got a little bit of chaotic in her. I think. All right. What do you what do you think, David? Yeah. What's your analysis? I think Judith. I, so I I definitely think that Jace is lawful good. Uh, I I think that Judith is chaotic yeah. neutral or verging on chaotic. Yeah. Good. Hmm. Um. Because I, I I don't think that being chaotic means that you're unaware of the law. I think it means that you're willing to like bend and break rules in order to get what you think you deserve i love that it puts them even further apart makes for good drama let's write chapter four yeah act four yeah it's just them playing D. oh man (laughs) they're teaching coop how to play D. Oh, yeah, that's what happens, everyone. Right yeah. after they leave Applebee's. You heard it here. <laughs> after they leave Applebee's. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah, right. So the reason I'm bringing up all of this D&D stuff mm-hmm. is because, Chris, your LinkedIn page refers to your extensive history as a dungeon master. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you read that. <laughs> yeah. can, we, can we talk about D&D for a hot minute? Of course. Um, oh. And also, crucially, like, I, I wouldn't just bring that up just to say, like, oh, Chris is a nerd. Like, I, I, you know, I'm a nerd. We're all nerds here. Um, but also it's yes. relevant because there's a whole record that y'all did as chamber band right. called Deities. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I once briefly for a single session played as the Noel King Yinogu, but that's another story. Oh, nice. Uh. What character classes do you both like to play? Because, Alan, I think you said you didn't play before you joined the band in 2013, right? Yeah. Full disclosure, I mean, I joined Chamber Band, like, literally at the end of recording Deities. Right. So, like, I literally came in, the first lady singer we had left the band, probably with, like, maybe two to three songs left of recording. Was that Allie? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, totally, like, neutral. Like, it wasn't, peace, guys, good luck with the album. We knew she was, yeah. And so I came in to sing, like, two songs at the end of that. But everything was already written. And so I really only started getting into D&D through chamber band. So I only played, like, two or three times. You're very good at it. 
I really like playing it. You really get into it. I really get into it. You are a person that is interested in the fantastical. Oh, 100%. And you commit to your characters, which is all a, a dungeon master could ask for. So what do you like to play? I feel like last time I was a rogue. I might have been a priest. I feel like I usually, well, in the RPGs I usually play, I'm usually like a priest or a healer. Yeah, like a cleric. Like, yeah, like cleric or like paladin. When I played World of Warcraft, I was a priest. Me too. As a blood elf priest. Oh, nice. I was a dwarf priest. Oh, cool. Not the same server. Not the same server. I was like Kilgrath. I was Gorefiend. Yeah, whatever. I was a PvP server, so. Oh, that was big money over here. We also PvP. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So it's not like how I imagined with the two of you fighting over who gets to play bard. (laughs) (laughs) We get to be bards professionally in our. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So like you know we like to use like you know RPGs as a way of escaping real life. You know, barbarians more like it. Act first, think later. You know. Yeah. So both of you have studied different kinds of writing. Chris, you studied TV. Ellen, you've done playwriting before. How do your different backgrounds express themselves when you work collaboratively? Oh, we were just talking about this over sake. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I always describe Ellen as a, a being of pure music and light. <laughs> uh, because it's true. Like, she just is of music. You just, music runs through your veins. But it, both of us are very skilled in both sides of it right we're both musicians we're both singers we're both composers we're both authors chris is a really good um filter and he's great at stepping outside of himself and like looking at the bigger picture and kind of putting on being an audience member if i'm like in the goo of the music Mm -hmm. he can be like on the other side of the goo and be like that riff really works or he'll be like, that one, not so much, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and he also is a great story generator. And so both of these elements of music and book, it'll be a lot of like me coming up with riffs at the piano, Chris doing like first pass on, on scenes, and then we like swap them. And so everything goes through both of us. And I mean, obviously there's like some songs that, you know, were generated by Chris and some scenes generated by myself but everything goes through both of us and particularly lyrics like lyrics are usually the ones where we like we'll do passes but at the end of the day we'll like sit down and work on those lyrics together because they start as dummy lyrics right yeah dummy lyrics (laughs) like the wayne brady on whose line lyrics like literally like i'm at the piano and Uh, i'm singing about this stuff and i've got a lot of feelings i would definitely listen to a podcast called in the goo thank you by the way like a songwriting podcast called In the Goo. Yeah. And it's just like the two of you covered in GAC, late 90s Nickelodeon GAC, struggling to reach a piano. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you decide to integrate Henry the Duck into the story? Um, I think I was in this exact chair. We're in my apartment in Bushwick, Brooklyn, which is where we wrote most of the show. Yes. Okay. It was pretty early on in the process. Yeah. It, like, we, we write... I mean, early on in the last leg of the process. Right. The first year of the show was writing, like, Figuring a version of the show. how to under... How to do the audio. How to figure it out. Right, 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 right. So, it was January. Yes. Of this year. <laughs> specific. Um, and we were... In kind of setting up that first five minutes of the show, it was a lot of figuring out, like, how can we introduce things that are unique to a podcast that can only yeah. be done in a podcast that are bizarre and really telling the listener 
that we're not going to pull any punches and we're going to really go for it. What's all the ear candy we could scatter? We were just like, great, the house is falling apart. This is going to be nuts. They're in a thunderstorm. The house is collapsing. What are some other things that like we can't do on stage that we can do like in our ears? Right. Uh And so Ellen said, what if he has like a pet duck that had like wandered in? (laughs) Oh, no, I think you were like, okay, this like, is yeah, the here's bad the idea. D- here's like the bad version. Here's right. like the dumb idea. Right. Not and, this, but yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. said, no, that is That's so dumb that it is the thing. It <laughs> yeah. has to be that. Yeah. And so Henry was born, but we had yeah. no idea that he was going to be so functional for us. Yeah, he was really important. He's really important. Yeah, he gives... You've, you've said yeah, I mean, I think that he gives uh, the audience an opportunity outside of the opening montage to hear Jace like really care about something and someone in a really contentious environment. Like the first episode, like Jace is not a like likable person for the most part. I think he's like very antagonistic of Judith's goal. Um, and so putting, adding Henry, we kind of get an opportunity to like hear him for a creature and like being soft and sweet and like also like Jonathan brought such great energy and life and wonder to that like Jason Henry relationship that was so good I'm just remembering this now in the third act we hear Coop playing with a duck mm-hmm. who is that duck <laughs> it's, Henry. it's Henry oh Henry's still alive oh yeah. for sure yeah, yeah, he's yeah. alive whatever yeah. okay. magic or math that you need to do for yourself to make that possible mm-hmm. that just do it because it's Henry's still in the picture yeah. okay. he's in well, awesome he's in the like, is it for it's like between 14 and 20 years I, think. I don't awesome. know the truth is that you can the make up whatever is... you want uh-huh. it to be <laughs> yes <laughs> it is it's definitely him yes he's got a happy ending yeah Henry gets the happiest ending ha- yeah Henry all gets the happiest ending. he's doing all right yeah so I want to talk about, uh, I don't really have a question, but it's more like, oh my God, Lin-Manuel Miranda noticed you. H- how are you? <laughs> doing okay. We're, oh we've had some time to really deal with it and just stare in the mirror and, and be like, is this, okay, this isn't real. This is, if we I touch this mirror, will I go through it yeah. and I'll go back to the normal world? Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. for the record, uh, Ellen has her head in her hands. She's just closed her eyes and she's got a mouth. She's smiling and she's laughing and staring ahead. I mean, we had no. I mean, th- yeah. that's great. It's, it's that's great. incredible. It was incredibly surreal and also it's so weird because we live in such a strange age of digital media that it both allows you and allows people of celebrity to be incredibly accessible and at the same time, like inaccessible. The fact that Lynn even, that he listened to it and that he liked it. Jonathan told us the other day that he left him a voicemail. I I heard it. You heard it? Yeah, I heard it. When? After we left. Oh. I was like, I have to listen to this. Oh my God. It's great. (laughs) So it's Lynn leaving a message for Jonathan Groff on Jonathan Groff's phone. Oh, no, I'm and he's singing the reality. He's singing the reality. Whoa! But he's saying yeah. he's changed the lyrics to yeah. be like, "You have to call me back." Yeah. Yeah, that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah. That blew my mind. My mind is being blown just by the concept of it. I haven't heard it yet. So, yeah. creative partnership in the next uh, Disney picture? Yeah, Lynn, if you're out there. Yeah. Uh, Usually heard me geek out if you've listened to this. Yeah. I mean, I know y'all are pretty busy. We'd make so time for Lynn. Gonna have to get in line. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> We might be able to work something. We make it work. Oh, weekend maybe. Yeah. 
<laughs> You've said in other interviews that you were interested in queering the story of 36 Questions and getting away from the heteronormativity of a story about a man and woman couple. Tell me about what you did to make queerness visible here. First of all, I think having Jace with his two moms and really trying to normalize that relationship that was like something we kind of just felt like it made sense to us that Jace would have two moms. We just always like imagined their family like that. We also knew that going into it, I'm a queer person, spoiler. And I think that Chris and I knew that if we were going to do a story about a husband and wife, that we didn't want the husband and wife romantic musical to fall into the typical husband and wife romantic musical tropes. Sure. We both are not totally straight, right? Right, right, yeah. And um, I think that could be Jace. It could be like, you know, Judith and Natalie are not both totally straight. Like, kind of jury is still out on Jace for me. But I think a big part of that is in terms of gender roles and their relationship, we wanted to make a point to really push that and push those gender norms so that it isn't just, you know, like the wronged wife who, you know, the, the husband messes up and is asking for forgiveness, which I feel like is a trope that we see in a lot of romantic comedies. Or like, you know, the woman is crazy and totally like off her rocker and is like, mm -hmm. and the dude doesn't care. We knew that Jace was a caring person. And I feel like caring, emotionally thoughtful men are underrepresented and poorly represented, I think, in a lot of media. Are, are you still working on um, Photogenesis or your queer sex positive Lisa Strada musical? Mm. Are either of those things still in the Photogenesis is like kind of taken, it still is living within me and is definitely percolating. And what is it for the fine folks in podcast land? Oh, Photogenesis is a story about basically like the world that stops turning and what happens when the world stops turning. Um, and half the world is in daytime and half the world is in nighttime forever. As of right now, it's marinating within my soul. And, you know, I do some writing on it every once in a while. But for the most part right now, Chris and I are really focusing on developing new ideas together. And both of those are on the list of ideas. And Chris and I have talked at length about Lissa Strada as well. And it's kind of been rolling around in our brains but I think what's most important to us about both of those is, and any project that we do is really answering the Passover question. And when we, when we approach a show or we approach an idea, like we want to have a really firm answer to that of like, why do we need to develop this now? Yeah. Can we parse that for non-Jews that are listening? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So like the Passover question is, what makes tonight different from all other nights? On this night, we recline. On this night, we recline. <laughs> That's something that we ask ourselves when we're writing, like, what makes this story different from all other stories? What makes, why these words now? Why does this need to happen tonight? I think for both of those pieces, we don't have that full sentence yet. And so until we have that full sentence, we are letting it percolate and letting inspiration strike. Chris, it, it looks like you take a photograph of the people you eat with every time you go out for a meal. Oh, you've done Post them on eatingwithpeople.tumblr.com. Oh my god, wait, what? Yeah, oh, Ellen, do you not know about this? I know about it, but I always forget what it's called, and then I, like, see him... It's eatingwithpeople.tumblr.com. Chris, it's hard to put into words how it makes me feel to look at these images, but it's as far from staged photographs of plates as you can get. Like, it was really sweet and earnest, and it made me feel good. 
I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that I saw it and I liked it. I'm so glad you feel that way because I feel the same way. And I post on it frequently, but I don't kind of look back a lot. And it's such a surreal trip down memory lane because it's all meant to be candid, though. You'll see that the oh people my gosh. like Kelly or Courtney will obviously see that I'm doing it and pose for it. Oh, there's the one of me and Jonathan. That's a really, really sweet picture. Yeah, you me. look crazy, yeah, right? Crazy. Sorry. Person. You look weird. You look weird. Sorry. <laughs> crazy with a K. So, yeah, I love it. And I and a lot of people feel weird about having their picture taken without their knowledge. And I obviously don't feel great about that. But <laughs> my interest in continuing to do it is bigger than my need to make everyone in my life happy. Do you, do you think you'll ever make like a fantasy musical? We've been asked already. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like a high fantasy, you mean? Either or. One of the projects we're kind of circling around is kind of in that realm where there's like a, there is the supernatural mm-hmm. and that's really yummy to us. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, obviously if the Tolkien estate or whatever came to right. us and we're like, look, we're trying to revisit this property. We want, you know, singing elves, all singing hobbits. <laughs> We would entertain that. Sure. Like, what's like elves meets Alt J? Exactly. How do they make them hip? How do they make these elves hip? Yeah. Yeah. It's like Middle Earth, like, but 2020. Yeah. You know, like America 2020, but also Middle Earth. My interest would be relative to the form in which we would explore that. Like, I feel like, kind of as we were talking about the naturalism of 36 questions and the style that's inherent to the podcast medium. Like the idea of doing a fantasy musical podcast seems I would need to cross a few bridges before I knew how to cross that one. Ellen and Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute delight. This was a delight for us. We would talk for hours. It would be my privilege. You are welcome to come on for the next one. Oh my gosh. This was such a dream. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, you two. Now, if you're interested in hearing In the Goo with Ellen and Chris, subscribe to Two Up Productions on Apple Podcasts or check out their Bandcamp page at 36questions.bandcamp.com. That's the number 36, not the words. Chris and Ellen are also in a band, Chamber Band, and they just released a new record called Governor Square, inspired by the works of H.G. Wells. You can listen to that and their other two excellent albums at chamberband.com. That is all the time we have for this week, my friends. I apologize for my voice. I will be better shortly. But neither sickness, nor rain, nor snow, nor sleet will keep me from delivering this show because I have a crew that makes the whole thing go. Yeah, you know where I'm at. It's credits time. I'm too sick to come up with lies for this week, so you're going to have to deal. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger, whose music can be found on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux, who also edited the interview this week. Thank you, Matt. You are great, and you are good. Eli McElveen is our regular interviews producer, and his work can be found at albasalix.com. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Find Monique and Matt's work at uberduo.com. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge, who is, you know, just everywhere. Say his name into your closet three times, and he'll start a new podcast. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.
Good job, NyQuil David.